I think of design in the in the most open way. The moment that you have a specific outcome in mind, and when you say, I, I see it this way, I want to produce this, I want to get to this kind of destination, you're becoming a designer because you're imagining a future and working to the future, you know, working to execute the vision. It's not dependent on the product. It's really, you know, thinking about the challenge and the solution in the most open way. And the process isn't defined by its outcome. The process is defined by the challenge. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. There are many ways to change the world, and my guest today offers a dose of inspiration for all lovers of design, Bruce Mao. To call Bruce a graphic designer is an oversimplification of the highest order. The 62-year-old Canadian native has used his powers of design thinking to rename countries, rewrite the rules of publishing, and through a traveling museum exhibition, bring the values of design to the masses. In 2016, Bruce won the National Design Award from the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in the category of, what else? Design Mind. Today, he runs Massive Change Network, a consultancy that uses design as a framework for action. Bruce is the subject of a new documentary, simply called Mao. It's available for streaming now. And it takes us through his early life in rural Canada, his struggles sometimes to be understood in the larger world of design, and his many groundbreaking projects. Mao's client list has included everyone from Coca-Cola to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where he attempted to create an ill-fated master plan for Mecca that's covered in the film. And what makes the documentary so impactful is that it not only talks about successes, but failures or things that didn't go quite exactly as planned. It's refreshing. The exhibition I mentioned is called Massive Change, just like the name of his firm, a show that uses interactive exhibits to inspire people to use design thinking to change not only their own lives, but the world around them. And while Bruce has designed and developed over 200 books in his career, architecture aficionados will certainly know the book SMLXL or Small, Medium, Large, Extra Large, a book he created with Rem Koolhouse that explored the architect's career in a way that broke the mold for design publishing. First published in 1997, it's still in print. After watching the documentary, I wanted to ask him more about his early life in the far north and how it influenced his career, why his bid to bring the massive chain show to China stalled, and the values of something that's certainly hard to find these days, optimism. I caught up with Bruce from his home office in Illinois. One of the major characters in the film is um, the town in northern Canada where you grew up. And it sort of plays this character that that has, you know, shapes your life um, almost more than anything. Um, how did that how did that life and sort of uh, in the cold north uh, up there, you know, impact you um, in your life as a human being even before we talk, we start talking about design? Well, you know, I grew up in, um, you know, on a farm outside of a mining town in northern Canada, where it was, you know, minus 40 for weeks on end during the winter. Um, and our house was built on a kind of rocky hill, which meant that we couldn't have running water during the winter months. You know, we couldn't get water into the house. So my job as a young man was to go to the well every day with my snowmobile and provide water to the house. And 
Um, how many times a day did you need to do that? Once a day. I would need to do it before I went to school. Um, oh, wow. And you know, I had, we had we had chores, and that was one one of mine. Um, and um, uh, you know, I had <clears throat> that experience, and um, it you know, for the longest time, I was just embarrassed by it. Frankly, I I didn't really see how that was in any way <laughs> relevant to my life uh, as a designer uh, and kind of doing what I do. Uh, but over time, I realized that actually um, there were a few things that happened in that place that really shaped how I think and work. And it shaped kind of the, the core of what I do um, and who I am. Because that experience is actually something I share with about a billion people. And about a billion people in the world don't have running water, don't have you know, access to clean clean water. Um, and um, uh, you know, I understand what it means to provide water for a family. You know how heavy that is, and you know what what it takes to actually put it into the house, um, and 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 how you behave differently when you know when you have to carry it. Um, you know, it's it's just a different approach, and um, and that kind of empathy, that you know, the ability to actually experience someone else's problem is actually the core of design methodology. It's a core design culture. Uh, and it's a core of caring. What you really do as a designer is care. You know, we care about the experience. We care about the details. We care about the impact and the effect of things. And so, you know, because you're, you're constantly focusing on that user experience, the individual citizen uh, but you can't have a, you know, a thriving citizen in a toxic ecology. So by extension, you care about the environment. Um, and when I, you know, when I had that insight, I realized that's why so many designers are involved in the environmental movement and the social movement and the kind of, you know, the big conversations of our time, because it really, you know, starts with caring and empathy as a methodology. And you know, one of the uh, sort of an eye-opening part of the the beginning of of the film is uh, you as a young man watching on TV uh, Expo '67, which mm -hmm. was uh, kind of a world's fair in Montreal um, with this sort of theme of man and his world. And can you describe to the listener, you know, what that fair was and kind of like what it meant to you? Because um, uh -huh. I feel like this is something that. Uh, Today we don't really have these kinds of events as much, or uh -huh. <laughs> they can sometimes be problematic. And those the way that the media works today, and and, yeah. and how design is communicated. What did Expo sixty seven kind of mean to you? And if you can describe to people what it was? Well, Expo sixty seven was a kind of blast of optimism. You know, it was it was um, you know an exploration of possibility uh, of you know what was what was coming and what was becoming possible. The American Pavilion was a massive geodesic dome done by Buckminster Fuller with a monorail that went through the pavilion, right? Through the dome mm -hmm. in, in kind of in, you know, it kind of flew through it in midair. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was stunning. And the whole thing was about possibility uh, and optimism and, um, 
you know, there was a time, there was a television show at the time. I remember, I mean, it's one of the greatest TV shows ever produced. It was called Here Come the 70s. And it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it opened with this incredible bongo music. I mean, beautiful music and a fly around um, expo, the expo pavilions, the island of Montreal. Um, and uh, there was a guy flying a jetpack. Right, flying around the the, uh, the the pavilions, and it was and it was all about you know every episode was about all the new things that were happening, and um, you know it was really influential for me. Even I, I was very young when it happened. You know, I was I was uh, sixty seven. I was only eight years old, and that was also when Habitat sixty seven, yeah, the famous piece of architecture, uh, happened. Did that kind of awaken a sort of um, design awareness in you well the whole thing i mean i didn't think of it as design you know i didn't i I just thought of it as cool (laughs) like (laughs) yeah that wow this is incredible this is what what's happening um you know it's not happening on the farm here but uh it is happening in the world Um, and it really drew me into the world you know that was what made me want to want to go out there and uh and see it and the realization, you know, quite recently that it was TV that actually did that, that, you know, that we kind of, uh, the engine was started by television. Uh, you know, that, that that's how I sort of really first got started thinking about this kind of stuff uh, was really surprising to me. You know, I never sort of attributed that kind of uh, positive effect of, te- of television. Um uh, but it really, th- that is really what, uh, what did it. You know, we had, back then we had two channels, French and English, uh, of CBC. Um, and it was, you know, quite extraordinary what the impact was. And y- you went to uh, the Ontario College of Art, um, but you left after about a year and a half. And you sort of found yourself in London and working for uh, the famous, you know, graphic design studio Pentagram. Um, what was it like working there at the time? What was, was, what was that like as a, as, as, uh, you know, as a young, as a young creative, like working at Pentagram back then? Uh, it was fantastic. I mean, it was an incredible experience and I was super young. I think I was like 20, 21 or 22. And, um, and I had this, you know, incredible opportunity uh, to do projects that I never would have, I mean, I wasn't really prepared for. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, they, uh, I worked with a designer named David Hillman. Um, and I had sort of two experiences there that were really important. One was just this kind of, you know, the design experience and being in the studio. And I just absolutely loved it. I worked all the time. Um, the other was that I met, people who really introduced me to the political world. I mean, in Canada, I was really apolitical. And I really wasn't involved in anything <laughs> that was poli- that you would call political. In London, um, you know, it was on the streets. I mean, it was, you know, I was there during the Thatcher years and the Falklands War. And Thatcher had um, closed the coal mining industry. And there were literally millions of people on the streets. I mean, uh, every 
every overpass, everything that would anything that would provide shelter was being used uh, by the homeless. And it was, um, I mean, it was, it was so raw, you know, the violence and the kind of anger uh, was really raw. And so, you know, it was an incredible experience. I, like it was the time of joy division. And I mean, it was a a kind of amazing music scene, um, you know, that I really got involved in and, um, and were you wait a minute <laughs> were you in the punk scene uh, yeah punk i mean it was London? it was a, a, a you know it was a really um really interesting club scene and art scene you know i i kind of made my home at the the uh institute for contemporary art the ica um which was you know very political very you know very in, in, engaged um, and I met a few people. You know, I met a guy named John Ward, um, who was also working at Pentagram at the time. Um, you know, and um, and John really kind of blew my mind and and sort of opened my worldview to the you know political realities of the world. And you know, in Canada, I'd never seen the state exercise its muscle. You know, like it was a, it was a very kind of, you know, well-governed <laughs> country, and the state didn't have to kind of express itself very often, um, and I'd never experienced it. But in London, you know, and, and Paris, you know, I was in Paris for um, a series of very uh, intense um, protests, and uh, you know, very violent, where people were killed, and um, and um, you know, you you saw the the kind of power of the state, um, you know, expressed onto the citizen, and it was a it was an eye opening, um, you know, awareness that that emerged. And for me, the how that translated was that um, you know I started to feel like I was working for the wrong people. And I wanted to, and I loved work, and I loved what I was doing. I just didn't want to do it for things that I didn't believe in. Um, and I didn't want to s- spend all that time, you know, so if I was going to work 12 hours a day, uh, which I routinely did, I didn't want to, I, would, I didn't want those 12 hours to be building a cage that I was going to have to live in. Uh, that that was the kind of feeling that I got. Um, and so I you know that that was the kind of the the other side of the experience there and i become I, I began to be more and more dissatisfied with what i was doing um and disappointed um and i ended up um starting a new studio with two friends uh called public good and was that based in london at the time no it was based in toronto we we returned oh, to okay. toronto uh i had two friends they were in new york at the time and um, and we you know we talked about it and cooked up this idea and and we decided to go back to Toronto um, and start uh, public good and the you know the concept was very simple that we would do things that we believed were making the world a better place and you know um, building culture and uh, intelligence and beauty and contributing that to the world. 
And do you remember your first project? Um, public good. I don't remember the first project, but but um, you know we we got work. We you know at the time this was before this was like in 1982, I think it was, and so in '82 it was before the NGO revolution. You know there were probably a thousand NGOs in the world at that time, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and um, and so we were working with you know people like that with unions with um government agencies uh you know with cultural institutions um and it was absolutely wonderful i mean it was not very um lucrative but but it was uh it was wonderful and but the reaction to it was really surprising that you know people said to my face you know you're crazy like who do you think you are that you can only do good work. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, what a crazy question. Like, yeah. like w- you know, why would you not believe that? You know, like, like why do you start from compromise? Um, and um, we managed to, you know, we had a wonderful run. We had, you know, we worked together for two years. And, um, uh, you know, we worked with the nurses union. And, you know, when we started with them, nurses could not get a meeting with the Minister of Health. I mean, imagine that. Like the nurses couldn't get a meeting with the Minister of Health in Ontario. And uh, we did a whole campaign. We did advertorials and we we did a whole kind of effort. And by the end of that work, uh, you know, they had a monthly meeting with the minister. And we we really activated that, uh, that movement, uh, to, you know, to put them, I mean, they're central to the healthcare system. The, the idea that they're not actually, you know, part of the conversation that happens at the highest level was just outrageous. And so that was the kind of thing we were doing and, and it was very, uh, exciting and, uh, but there were times, you know, it was, it was not very lucrative as I said. And, uh, there were times when, we wanted to do other things <laughs> to make money, uh, but the the fact that we called ourselves public good turned out to be really important because um, because it was like putting up a flag, and you couldn't really kind of take the flag down and put up the private good flag. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, once you once the flag was up, you know, like okay, this is what we're flying, uh, and so that's uh, that's how we worked. And what happened is that a project came along that my partners didn't want to do. They didn't think it was public good. Um, and I did, and I really wanted to do it. And so I went off on my own to do that. And uh, and that turned into my, my own studio that, you know, I've been, you know, I've had my own studio now for a lot of years. And, you know, one of the people in the film that, um, understandably, uh, knows you the best and is one of the most insightful uh, commentators. Uh, is your wife BC Williams? Uh, who? Uh, what is? What would you? How would you describe her role in your professional life? Um, you know, today does she work with you, or is she more? Uh, uh, you know, a constant companion, hearing all the, all the ups and downs. Um, well, she's both. I mean, we became partners. Um, in Massive Change Network. So we were co-founders um, and we decided to do that together. Before that, she was uh, in a kind of stealth mode. You know, she worked on everything, 
you know, she saw everything and she knew everything. So she provided a kind of insight and guidance that is really super valuable. And she, you know, she would see things in the work and in the way that I was doing things that I couldn't see. Um, you know, BC was really responsible for the publishing, you know, because she said, Bruce, like in your business, you know, in this, in this field, you know, there's no, uh, there's no resistance to theft. People will copy you. <laughs> like, you know, people will just copy other, other designers. And, uh, and once two things are done, there's no timeline. You know, no one knows which one came first. So, yeah. um, so if you want to actually be a, be recognized for your contribution, you're going to have to publish it and really produce the history yourself. Um, and that really started the research and writing and publishing work that became really central to you know what we do and who we are um, because we were able to, um, let's say that one of the things I realized over time, again, I didn't really start out to do this, but over time, I realized that I was making these uh, projects that I call context projects. They're projects that really articulate the context in a new way and sort of make a map of the territory that, that hasn't been done before. And when you do that, what happens is that you have this new territory to work in. You know, when you invent the real estate, you have it first, you're there before other people, you're able to kind of do things and explore it uh, before it gets populated. Um, and that's what we were able to do a few times. And that really was instrumental in, uh, in really kind of building the practice and building the methodology uh, because it kind of, um, it opened up new territory for us. Um, you know, when you think about massive change, you know, the massive change project, um, you know, we kind of made a map of design that hadn't been seen before and introduced a whole new kind of language about, you know, what design could be. Before we return to Bruce, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects. From Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Janus AC's Kyoto Alu collection balances the past and present, drawing its name and inspiration from Kyoto, Japan. Each piece resembles bamboo furniture, but instead is made from a lightweight powder-coated aluminum with hand-woven Janus fiber, a proprietary material designed to withstand the elements. The line, which includes rounded armchairs, sofas, ottomans, and side tables, features generous proportions and distinctive patterns that are elevated by the luxuriously plush cushions. The eye-catching pieces come in a bright limestone and a dark lava, and suit almost any mood for any outdoor space. My tie, anyone? To create a unique outdoor living space that passes the test of time, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S 
B-E-T-C-I-E.com. Um, fast forwarding a little bit, um, of course, you know, uh, major project uh, in your professional career where you, you probably can measure everything in it before and after is uh, small, medium, large, extra large. And to, to people that that don't know this book and this project and kind of what it meant to the design world, can you describe, you know, what it is? Rem uh, called me and asked me to work with him on a project. Um, and so I, and he had been a contributor to the first volume of Zone, uh, that project that really started my own practice. And, um, and so I went to Rotterdam, uh, and his, his studio was in total chaos. And um, he explained that, that he wanted to do a book. He had a contract for a book with Rizzoli uh, of 256 pages, and he wanted me to, to help him with that. Um, and to work on a project on for for uh, a city hall, um, and so I we started the project, and um, you know he explained he was working uh, with an incredible woman named Jennifer Sigler, uh, who was the editor, and they explained this kind of concept they had for the book, and uh, they had a very big format and uh, a, a very kind of big ambition for it. Um, and you know, as I began to work on it, I realized this isn't going to work. That like we're never going to get this mm. into 256 pages. So I said, you know, what if we made the book half as big and twice as many pages? Just fold it in half. <laughs> um, and that started a process. We made a couple of folds o- over time, <laughs> and it ended up almost—I can't remember the exact number. It's almost 1,500 pages. Um, oh gosh! But the project the real project was uh to make a documentary on what it means to dig a hole in the earth and change the world you know on the reality of architectural practice not the kind of sanitized image of it you know at the time and i think still today for the most part architectural publishing is a kind of process of sanitizing the the image that you know you look at the image and you think like nothing ever happens here you know there's no struggle no failure no sex no death no life it's just a building so the idea was to really try to understand you know what does it take to to live this way and to kind of make this kind of impact uh, in the world um and that was really the kind of you know the project. And so, um, you know, I said, I, I don't want to do that kind of the old architecture book. I mean, if, if that's what you're going to do, you don't need me. Um, if you want to do, do a new kind of object that really, you know, kind of resonates, you know, that vibrates with reality, um, that I think is a wonderful project to, to do. Um, it turned out to be a lot harder than I imagined. Uh, it took almost five years. You know, we we both nearly went bankrupt wow. several times in the process, um, and we had to. You know, we got the the the, the man who commissioned it, uh, uh, Monticelli, Mr. Monticelli. He got fired. Oh dear! Partly for commissioning it, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, uh, and he. 
he left and started his own publishing company. And so our project kind of got, you know, marooned um, in this publishing house. So we eventually bought it out of there and sold it back to him. So, oh, wow. Because he had the guts to do it. Um, and how many print runs has this book been through now, would you say? Oh, I don't know. It turned out to be the b- best-selling architecture book of all time. Wow. Um, and, you know, which was really surprising to everybody, including us, um, that, you know, we thought it would be successful, but not at that level. Um, uh, well, yeah. I would say ever since that book, every time any designer wants to do a monograph, they they always want it to be more than just a monograph of and they're kind of referencing what you did in a way um you know often referenced but extremely rarely uh duplicated if you don't mind me saying i think that that most people are not willing to actually do the work that we did and to do the the kind of process because um and in the film actually there's a there's a kind of funny moment that I really like where a journalist is saying, you know, why is your name on the cover? Because you're the designer. Uh, and, you know, Rem wrote the book and you designed it. Why are the names the same size? And I explained, well, that's the old way of thinking. That's not how this book was produced. This book was really produced as a collaboration. And it was actually Rem who insisted that my name be on the cover. I, I didn't expected at all i mean i thought i was a designer and i was going to be you know you know in the credits um and it was rem who said no no no, this is our collaboration and um and he insisted that that we do that um and and what was he like as a as a collaborator uh rem is one of the best collaborators i've ever worked with i mean he is extraordinary at getting things to happen between people he can get people to do stuff that they're not able to do <laughs> you know like like you look at it, like that's not gonna happen but he makes it happen <laughs> what did he get you to do um well we you know we worked together for five years we went to practically every project so we traveled to all the projects so that i could really understand them um and um you know, we were able to to do that and to and to kind of push it through to completion. And it's you know, it's um, you know, Rem Rem was such a hard worker. You know, I think that that people don't realize what it takes to do that level of work. Um, you know, when Rem arrives in the studio. He's working before he has his jacket off. Like he is looking at things. He's already kind of in the work while he's taking off his jacket. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, I mean, it's really something that is inspirational. You know, he's inspirational for the people around him. Uh, and so, you know, there's a there's a wild side, and there were some, you know, there were certainly some really difficult bumps along the way. Um, Rem is like a whirling dervish and I'm like a rock in the stream. Mm. You know, and so the two, those two forces actually work, worked really well together. 
like that, my slowness uh, was actually very helpful. Because I think if I was frantic like Rem, it would have been <laughs> disastrous. <laughs> I know we, we would have, I don't know, I don't know what would have happened. But, um, <clears throat> but I think this kind of, the, the combination actually worked really beautifully. And, um, and we became very good friends. We, you know, we traveled with our families. We went on holidays together. Uh, it was an incredible experience. I mean, I know more about Rem's work than probably anybody on the planet. Before we return to Bruce, a word from our sponsor, Duravit. Founded in 1817 in Germany's Black Forest, Duravit is the international authority on design-driven bathrooms. The company collaborates with leading designers from around the globe to create spaces that enhance your quality of life. With the virtues of design entrenched in its DNA, the company has garnered more than 180 awards for excellence. And for those that know its incredible designs, it's not hard to see why. The incredible designs are found in some of the top museums around the world, from the V&A Museum in Dundee, Scotland, to the Louvre in Abu Dhabi. The best thing about Duravit, however, in the mind of this grand tourist, is the brand's versatility. There's literally no kind of bathroom that couldn't utilize the incredible pieces the company offers. Take the line by Philippe Stark, simply called Me. It's a totally versatile system that can fit any home's design. It can go from sleek and modern to warm and tactile. For more information on Duravit or to find a local distributor, visit www.duravit.us or call 888-Duravit. That's D-U-R-A-V-I-T. And the film walks through, you know, some of your most important collaborations and projects. Um, I'm wondering if there was something in your portfolio, even a small project, that you think personally doesn't get the attention that it deserves, that maybe wasn't even mentioned in the in the documentary. You know, um, I think that about every project. You know, when <laughs> I when um, the Philadelphia Museum did a exhibition of my work and and uh, it was a wonderful experience. They they did a beautiful job, and um, I was very reluctant to kind of go retrospective. You know, I wanted to go. On, I really wanted to focus on what we were doing now, but they wanted something that was really retrospective, and so I said, "Look, we could do the books because books have been so important to my work, and I you know I absolutely love them." Um, and, uh, you know, I've done, you know, the, you know, we've, we've done over 250 books. And so we did a, a, a kind of installation where we showed 200 of the books that was really beautifully done. I mean, they did a, a kind of masterful job. Um, and so in preparing that, you know, I, 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 um, hired my daughter to, to organize all the material to make sure that, you know, get all the data and, you know, all the information for the museum and, and to make sure each copy was was uh, pristine and you know properly packaged and all that, and so she did all that work. And, and while she was doing it, I would come into the studio, and every day I would say, "Oh, I love that book." <laughs> and, and the next day she'd be doing another book, and I'd walk in and I'd say, "Oh, I love that book." And when finally she said, "You love all these books, don't you?" I said, "Yeah, it's like having two hundred children." You know, and and also three girls, <laughs> and like like for me, they're my babies. You know, um, and so each one. I mean, if you think about what a collaboration is, 
each one is a very intimate collaborative you know process where you kind of fall in love with someone you know like you you get inside their head and you work with them and you produce something together and it's just an absolutely incredible life I mean, when I think about, you know, what I've had the good fortune to do over the last 40 years of collaborating with some of the best artists, innovators, architects, uh, you know, musicians, and I mean, just amazing people, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, innovators, heads of state, you know, like uh, incredible people. Um, and uh, it's been a, it's been such a, uh, a wonderful life of learning and ideas. And, you know, it's kind of more than I could ever have dreamed of. And I said to someone the other day that I'm a bibliaire. I'm, I'm not a billionaire, <laughs> but I am a bibliaire. <laughs> you know, my, I, I am wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I live a life of ideas. So a big part of the film centers around your show, um, Massive Change, and your efforts to bring it to China. And there's a part where you give a speech there saying that anyone, man, woman, or child can be a designer and change the world. And the film ends noting that the show in China has been pulled. Um, so I'm wondering if you could expand upon those ideas a little bit. And do you think that they were perhaps too radical for the country? And you know, did you poke the panda in the wrong way, essentially? Uh, it was very radical. I was kind of shocked, actually, that they, that I was even allowed to say it out loud, <laughs> and and that they were also saying it out loud. Um, I thought because you know when I gave that, you're basically saying that everyone has agency. That's right. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, design is the distribution of power. I mean, what you're really doing, you know, when you give people the tools to design, you're giving them the power to to, to control their life, and that's. A cool thing to do. That's what I've been trying to do for 40 years. I mean, public good, you know, we weren't so sophisticated about it, but basically that's what we we're trying to do. Yeah, I was kind of shocked that they were so receptive. Um, when we did the presentation that's in the film, uh, following that presentation, uh, Professor Song uh, took the stage and basically said, this is how we have to live. This is how we're going to work. This is the future. The, you know, what Bruce described is what we need to do, and we're going to do it. Um, and um, it wasn't long before, the, you know, we were shut down. And um, I don't know if it was, I mean, I think it was the fight with Canada that really um stopped it but there may have been more direct political um interference um you know who, who knows um i you know i don't know if they'll ever come back you know they might come back that they might want to do it again um mm. but we decided we're going to do it and that idea of making you know giving people the power to design their lives I mean, we didn't start that. You know, that's been going on for a long time. Apple did it. You know, if you choose fonts, you're a designer. Hmm. You know, that choosing fonts was the exclusive domain of designers for, you know, for several hundred years. 
Now everyone does it. If you have an if you have an iPhone, if you have a cell phone, if you have, if you have a smartphone, you're a designer. Hmm. So then the question is, are you a good designer? You know, do, do you know how to think? Um, and could you think better? You know, could you have better tools for thinking? Um, and so we're already designers. You know, we design our homes, we design our our food, we design our fashion, we design how we live. Uh, the question is, you know, what's the quality of that design? Could we could we do it better? Could we do it more sustainably? Could we do it in a way that more people are included? Could we design things so that uh, things are more equitable? And um, and could we could we really design for the rest of life and not just for ourselves? So now that we're all designers, let's talk about what's next, you know, and kind of take it to the next level. And, you know, one of the other things you talk about in, in the film is this idea of fact-based optimism instead of cynicism. And, you know, today there's so much, <laughs> seemingly so much bad news uh, out there. So I'm curious, like, what are you optimistic about in the grand scheme of things? Well, I'm optimistic about a new generation um, who really are waking up to the kind of mess that they find themselves in. Uh, and looking at you know previous generations and saying you know look what you've done and you know w- you know we've got to clean this mess up and we've got to take responsibility for it um, and they're they're leaning into it you know they're 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 not going to do things the old way uh, you know they're going to change the way that we do things. And the sooner we can get on with that, the better. You know, the the challenges are are enormous, uh, and the longer we wait, the the worse it is. So, you know, I'm I'm optimistic about that. And, um, I, you know, I, <clears throat> the reason we call it fact based optimism is that um, it's really important to actually look at the data. And when you look at the data, it's incredibly good. Now there. are are new problems that are incredibly bad, uh, but um, but we have a we have a new class of problem because we succeeded so often. Like we have what I call success problems, not failure problems. Hmm. That we succeeded in solving so many problems: sanitation, you know, transportation, communication, uh, you know, uh, disease, hunger. I mean, these are these are uh, fundamental first-order challenges that we have really solved. Now we haven't solved it perfectly, and there's still inequity, and there's you know there, there's all kinds of uh, stupidity in the world. But uh, but we have so dramatically solved them that we are now eight billion people and going you know on our way to ten. That's only possible because we solved all those problems. Now we have a new higher order complexity problem, climate change. Uh, it's not a kind of first order problem. It's a, a new, more complex, higher order problem uh, because we're 8 billion people. If we were a billion people, you know, if we had failed more, um, <laughs> we, would, we could behave like frat boys. It wouldn't make a difference. 
but at eight billion, it really matters. And so, um, so now we have to design everything to really, you know, solve that higher level problem. Um, and that's the, you know, so I'm optimistic about that. That we have the, you know, we already have the technologies, the tools, and those are only going to expand dramatically. So, um, you know, I, I'm. I have no doubt that there there's going to be um, terrible impacts and trouble coming, uh, but you know we also have the tools to to respond. And and one of my last questions is you you talk about in the film uh, giving your kids the tools to write the script of their own lives, and so what I want to ask you is um, if you had to write the script of your remaining years, um, which will hopefully be many, what would that script look like? That's a great question. Um, it's, I think, for me the the um, you know I'm at my best when I have hard problems to grapple with, and I think um, massive action and giving people the the tools of design uh, and you know, putting putting design into the hands of as many people as possible, that's a really that's a really vexing problem. Um and I intend to really do as much as I can to contribute to that. Um yeah, I've been very, very fortunate that I'm in a position to contribute. Um and so for me the the more that I can contribute, um the better. And and that's what I'm gonna try to focus on. Thank you to Bruce and the team at Novita PR for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs>